in the atmosphere of Hebrews chapter 12 is that of a foot race taking place within an arena. Whoever God used to write this book understood that. This happened during the Greek time period and during the Roman time period. And so, get in your mind's eye runners who have laid aside their training weights. And they're now striving to run the race successfully. And as you run, if you've ever done that, you you know sometimes you get weary. Even great runners can get weary, and sometimes even good runners can faint. And there are others who endure to the end, and they win the prize. And one, there's one great theme that's running through Hebrews 12, and it is, it is coming from this word endurance. If you look, may I remind you, all the way back to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, which says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So that's the ongoing theme here of chapter 12, and and chapter 12 has been telling us, how do you do that? Well, the Jewish believers, these Hebrews here, who had received this letter, were getting weary. They were tempted to quit, some of them at least. They wanted to give up, some of them, and so the Holy Spirit is encouraging them, hey, keep moving forward in your Christian life, just like runners running on a track in the arena. And today, my friends, we're going to actually see three motivations that encourage us as Christians to keep going, keep running, even when the situation of life gets difficult. So let's read the words of the living God from Hebrews 12, verse 18. Verse 18 says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. Here's the order coming from the Old Testament. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, quote, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. 
For if they did not escape when they refused him, who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Proposition from this text, may remind you, is all about that word endurance. And here's what God wants you to do, my friends. He wants you to persevere to the end. What's going to enable you to do that, though? That's what God wants you to do. What's going to actually help you to accomplish God's purpose here? Well, let's look at three motivations for perseverance. See, you need to be motivated. Because life is hard. Oh, you may not be thrown in prison. You you may not be killed and martyred for your faith yet. It's coming. It's coming may not happen to you yet in your in your lifetime. I don't know. But we nevertheless need to persevere. We need to endure. How are we going to do that? We need to hold on to God, basically. The three motivations all come from God here. Who is God? Well, what do we see here? Number one, God is covenant maker. He's a God who makes covenants, and He's a God who keeps covenants. And some have said the entire Bible is broken up into these two covenants. And it is. You have a Old Testament or an Old Covenant. And you have a New Testament or a New Covenant. And the God of the Old Testament and the New is the same God. He hasn't changed, by the way. And so God makes promises in the Old Testament. And when you read the New Testament, you ought to rejoice that God keeps those promises. Now, some of them haven't been fulfilled yet. May I remind you to keep holding on to the same God who it will fulfill all promises. But nevertheless, we have a covenant maker. There's two covenants who are that are contrasted here in this text using mountains. God loves mountains. He often shows up on mountains, kind of revealing himself using these mountains. Mountains are majestic. We we look at mountains, we love mountains. And the first one mentioned here is Mount Sinai. And so the, the, we see here under Mount Sinai that the Old Covenant here is represented by Mount Sinai. It's where God gave His law to Moses and the Israelites after they had exited Egypt. So let's look at some descriptions here that are actually, by the way, coming out of the book of Exodus. So if you want a fuller description out of coming out of what God has said here in Hebrews, read Exodus. What, what did Israel and Moses actually see? What happened at Mount Sinai? You need to read the book of Exodus. 
But let's, let's look at what Hebrews says here about the description. What did Mount Sinai uh, actually look like, and, and what happened there? Well, first of all, the first description given to us here in this text is that the mountain was not to be touched. Mount Sinai was not to be touched. And that particular verse there, in verse 18, reminds us what actually God told Moses. Notice, Hebrews is one of these books that has a lot of quotation marks in your Bible. Do you know why those quotation marks are there? Because they're quotations from the Old Testament. If you have a Bible that gives you the uh, cross-references, you'll notice where they come from. But this one's coming from Exodus chapter 19, verse 12. Here's what God told Moses. He said, set limits for the people all around, that's around Mount Sinai, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Why did God say that? Because God is holy. There's to be a distinction, a separation from what is holy and from what is unholy. Israel was unholy. And so when man came to God here at this mountain of law, there was a separation between man and God because man is unholy. We, we are sinful. God's not. So a separation was made here because of our sin and God's holiness. The, the second description here of Mount Sinai is it's a blazing fire. And so, don't just get some uh, <clears throat> pathetic imagery in your mind here of, you know, one of those fake fireplaces. You know what I'm talking about, the fake ones. Sometimes you'll even see paintings of fires and some uh, painted fire of some decorated fireplace that some people use because they don't want the real thing because they're dirty or whatever. Oh, no, that's not. this is not one of those. <laughs> this was a fire that could be felt. It was menacing. It was hot. It was destructive power. And if you're looking at that photo and if you've never seen the video, you might be wondering, uh, why is Jebel all laws up there? Well, that's because I think that's the real Mount Sinai. You'll notice it's burnt at the top. Uh, the, the fake one that has a monastery at the base of it, I don't think is the real one, um, which often... In your Bibles, if you have a little mountain symbol in your in the back of your Bible with a question mark, that's why. <clears throat> Usually it's not the real one. I think that's the real one. There's plenty of proof for that. You can look it up on the Internet if you want. But the, the mountain was a, literally a blazing fire, and that's why it's burnt at the top. The stones are fried. It was a barrier to access. It was a deadly one, too. The third description here mentioned in your Bible is the mountain was the shadow of death. The shadow of death. Look at the description here. Not only is it a blazing fire in verse 18, it mentions darkness and gloom and a tempest. It was a dark place. It was covered with this gloom and this tempest here. And this is what it meant to come to God under the administration of the law. Under that old covenant, it was terrifying. If you came without, if you came in your uncleanness, it, it should have been terrifying. So there was this trumpet blast. There was a voice of thunder that 
It terrified the people. They could not bear the voice of God, and so they needed a mediator. Poor Moses. <laughs> Moses, please go. It, it, it freaks us out. You, you go and you deal with that God on that mountain because we can't bear it. Now, to get the full effect of this, what you have to do is you have to rattle all of these items off one after the other because that's what the writer of Hebrews is doing. It's, it's like a machine gun. <laughs> He's just nailing you between the eyes with all of these things about the Old Covenant, and it's like, you're getting pounded by these if you get the full force of this. See, the mountain's roped off. It's a blazing, dark, gloomy, storm-ridden place. And from this mountain, you're getting a blast of trumpets and voices that are making the people here begging God to stop. They didn't want to die. And even their spiritual leader, Moses, did you notice what he said? How is he feeling about this? Here's Moses, this giant of the faith, a man who is set apart by God and for God. And what is he saying? Moses is saying, I tremble with fear. That's the right response to this terrifying God. And this is really bad news because people need a mediator between a holy God and unholy people. But fortunately, there's verse 22. Fortunately, there's verse 22. What glorious words. How often do we get these texts where you get really bad news about an old covenant like this, but then you get the word but? The word but is one of the greatest words in your English vocabulary. It's showing this contrary, contrast here. So, in, in, in effect, the writer here is admonishing God's people to not listen to the voices of their old friends. Some of these people here were tempted to go back to Judaism, the old covenant. Don't listen to them. Don't pursue your former life. And there is a helpful passage. There's a lot of helpful passages in in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. It is one of the greatest books of all time. But one of the passages that reminds me of this is where Christian is as he's headed to Mount Zion, the celestial city, Christian's actually lured away by Mr. Worldly Wise Man, and he's directed to go to Mount Sinai. Oh, don't go to the celestial city. Don't don't go to Mount Zion. No, you need to go to Mount... uh, Sorry, don't go to Mount Zion. Go to Mount Sinai. John Bunyan knew the Bible. And here's what John Bunyan wrote. By the way, in that picture, you'll see Mr. Worldly Wiseman trying. He's pointing over there to Mount Sinai. He says, hey, that's where you need to go to get rid of your burden. And here's what he said. So Christian turned out of his way to go to Mr. Legality's house for help. <laughs> By the way, you won't find help with Mr. Legality. He just puts you in greater bondage. Bunyan goes on to say, but behold, when he got close to the hill... That's Mount Zion, or uh, Mount Sinai. It seemed so high and so steep that Christian was afraid to venture farther, lest the hill should fall on his head. Wherefore, there he stood still and did not know what to do. Also, his burden now seemed heavier to him than while he was on the right path. There came also flashes of fire out of the hill that made Christian afraid 
that he should be burnt. Therefore he did quake for fear. And now he began to be sorry that he had taken Mr. Worldly Wiseman's counsel. Then he saw evangelists coming to meet him. Unfortunately, the story doesn't end there because uh, Mr. Evangelist, who's a good guy, of course, in the story here, uh, got him back on the right track, headed toward Mount Zion, headed toward the celestial city, and of course the race continued on to the heavenly Jerusalem for Christian. But my friends, the old covenant is the wrong path. Mount Sinai is the wrong path. Hebrews has been telling us this all along. The old covenant is not the way. Jesus is the way. The new covenant is the way. And so you see this contrast starting here in verse 22, starting with that word but. The new covenant we see here is represented by Mount Zion. Well, what is Mount Zion like? Well, I hope you noticed all the ands. I was emphasizing the ands as I was reading this because it's just, again, it's another machine gun blast Boom, boom, boom. There's seven of them. Seven realities that should keep you running to Mount Zion and not get off the path. Don't head to Mount Sinai, that old covenant. That's not where you want to go. Go toward the new covenant. Run toward Christ, toward Mount Zion. And as you read verse 22, let me just highlight this because it says, but you have come. Have come. It's a very interesting verb. See, it's actually in the perfect tense in the Greek. Perfect tense isn't used a whole lot, so let me explain what's going on here. See, it's actually a completed action, and that's why the ESV translates this so well in saying, you have come. It's a completed action, but it's a completed action from something that took place in the past that is resulting in a state of being in the present. So it's not just something that was really cool history and and has nothing to do with you. It has ongoing results for you. And that's why you can stand in this even today. It has ongoing results from the past. So look at the New Covenant here, how it's described for us. Number one, what have you come to? What have you come to? Number one, you have come to what? The city of God. You don't come to a mountain. You come to a city. See, you need to understand a little Old Testament history here, my friends. See, Mount Zion was actually originally the location that King David captured. And he made it the religious center of his kingdom by bringing the ark of God there. And then when King Solomon, David's son, actually built the temple, you know what he did? He actually installed the Ark of God or the Ark of the Covenant there in the temple. So Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, was called Zion. And it became synonymous with the earthly dwelling place of God because God's special presence was represented right there in the Ark of the Covenant. And now in Christ, of course Hebrews is showing Christ is superior in every way, but but in Christ we've come now to the heavenly counterpart. 
We don't go to Jerusalem. We don't have to go to Jerusalem. We don't have to pray to Jerusalem. We've come to the heavenly counterpart, the spiritual Jerusalem. And so in one sense, my friend, this is something that is still to come. The new Jerusalem will come down. But we've already arrived there in spirit. And so Christians are now citizens of a heavenly city of this new Jerusalem and we enjoy its privileges even now. We are in Zion by virtue of the union that Christians have with Christ. So first of all, this is glorious. The new covenant shows this is far better. This is where you want to be. Look to this covenant maker. You have come to the city of God. But number two, the second reality that should keep us running to Zion is this, that you have come to innumerable angels. (laughs) That's what it says there in verse 22. Angels are cool. All right, people get, um, sometimes people get weird with angels, but the Bible does tell us a little bit about them. Angels, by the way, they show up everywhere in church history. Uh, Sometimes they actually protect God's people. The Bible says they're God's servants, His ministers who minister to his people. And one of my favorite autobiographies that I have ever read is missionary John Patton, who went to Vanuatu many years ago. Uh, Back then it was called the New Hebrides. I highly encourage you to read that book about John Patton. But one of the things I learned as I was reading that is God protected John Patton many, many times from the cannibals who had tried to kill him. And they would have if it wasn't for God sending his angels. And the people of Vanuatu actually told John Patton after they became Christians that uh, they wanted to kill him, but they didn't kill him on many occasions because these angels show up, and, and here's how the Vanuatu people describe these angels. They quote, tall men in shining garments. Other times they describe these angels as having swords. It's interesting, the the angels are always tall, usually described as wearing white, usually described as shiny. Not always do they have swords, uh, but sometimes they they do. And and this is kind of a continuous theme. You you go all the way around the world, you, you see this over and over and over again. It's usually unbelievers who see this, and God uses it. Uh, for example, here, another time, uh, they, they surrounded a missionary's house. Again, uh, this one was in China. And uh, the locals described the angels as tall soldiers with shining faces. And they protected this missionary. Her name was Marie Monson of China. On another occasion, uh, same person, this took place in the Rift Valley and in the Rift Valley, they, they had, the missionaries had set up this academy. And the locals described the angels as huge men dressed in white with flaming swords. And so, the, again, they had come to kill the missionary, and uh, they didn't because the angels protected. On another occasion, <laughs> uh, the locals described the angels this way, hundreds of men dressed in white with swords and shields, and they stood guard over the hut, and it was a different missionary by the name of Clyde Taylor. Similarly, a missionary in China named Carol Carlson learned why these, these bandits never attacked her compound. 
and the locals said this, that there were men in white walking up and down the wall. Very interesting. Sometimes God's angels protect people, but sometimes they're there presiding over the martyrdom of His people. Let me me give you one of my favorite stories. See, angels preside over the apparent tragedy of God's people. Notice I said apparent, because God's in control. Uh, One missionary by the name of Olive Fleming, who after her husband and the other four men were slaughtered in Ecuador, South America, she ended up getting married again, and uh, Olive Fleming became Mrs. Liefeld. She wrote a book called Unfolding Destinies, and she told about two of those Aka Indians who heard um, after the five men were killed by the Aka Indians, they were speared to death, they heard singing in the trees after witnessing the, the martyrdom of these missionaries. And here's what they said. Quote, As they looked up over the top of the trees, they saw a large group of people. And they were all singing, and it looked as if there was a hundred flashlights. <laughs> That's what they said. God sent his angels. God used that to save most of the Aka Indians. And so I'm thankful for angels under the new covenant. What a glorious thing here. We, we, we should be thankful for God's care of his people. But that's not the real point of the passage. <laughs> See, the main emphasis in this passage is about us actually joining with the angels. It's not about them presiding over us in our martyrdom and so forth, right? Notice it mentions festal gathering in the text. You say, what is festal gathering? I mean, that sounds really formal, right? What's that? Well, the word was used in ancient culture to describe the great national assemblies, these these big sacred games of the Greeks. Very important time. And it's interesting here, in contrast, the New Covenant with the Old Covenant, whereas at, at Mount Sinai, the angels were blowing trumpets that terrified God's people. Here you have the opposite. We see ourselves here at Mount Zion. We're dressed in festal, festival attire. And we're worshiping God side by side with the angels. These tall men, white shining faces in glorious attire, who have been seen all around the world for centuries. They still exist. And you're going to worship God together with them one day, my friend. That's the point. Now how cool is that? (laughs) How cool will that be? I look forward to that. Imagine standing next to an angel and singing in heaven. That'll be awesome. But it goes on because notice there's an and. There's an and between all of these seven realities. Boom, boom, boom. You're getting nailed with these glorious truths. And number three is that you have come to fellow believers. Because verse 23 says and to the assembly of the firstborn who are... Notice where you're enrolled. You're enrolled in heaven. Your real home. And you say, well, who, who's this firstborn? Well, if you read Colossians chapter 1, you'll know that Jesus is the firstborn. 
And so by virtue of this union with Jesus, now all Christians become firstborn. And if you don't get the theology of this, you might say, okay, big deal. Why, does, why should I care about that? Why does it matter that I'm firstborn? And by the way, even if you're secondborn, middleborn, lastborn, you're firstborn if you're a Christian. And it matters greatly because here's the good news, my friends. All Christians get the big inheritance. All Christians, because you're firstborn, get the big inheritance. And, and there's, there's more good news here because as firstborn, notice your name is written in heaven along with all the other firstborns who are already in heaven. Moses is there. Hebrews 11's already told you he's there, along with Abraham and all the other great heroes of the faith. They're there. They're firstborns. And so are you if you're a Christian. And, and so, in other words, what I'm saying is there's this amazing solidarity here between what theologians call the church triumphant, the ones who have died and gone to heaven. That's the church triumphant. There's a solidarity between the church triumphant and the church militant that's still here on earth. That's what theologians, how they distinguish the church. right? Church triumphant, church militant. But we're still all the church. Okay, Some of us just haven't died and gone there yet. And so we're all a part of this body of Christ. And the good news is the family is never broken. It just simply keeps growing and, and going on and on. It's a, this, it, notice it's described as a bulging assembly of first sons and daughters. It's a big family. It's a glorious family. And if you're a Christian, you're a part of this under the new covenant. The fourth reality is that you have come to God. Wow. I've come to God? Under the, under the old covenant, you don't get to go to God. You can't even step foot at the base of the mountain lest you die. You get burned and consumed. Oh, but now you get to come to God. Verse 23 says, See, not only are you enrolled in heaven, but you come to God. And so although the scene in Zion to, to which we come here is certainly a joyous festival, it's a glorious thing. I, I just want to highlight something. It is not a casual thing. Uh, sometimes, sometimes Christians get a little... Um, they get the warm and fuzzies, if you know what I mean. And, and they get too casual. See, may I remind you that when, when you come to Mount Zion, you are meeting the same God of Mount Sinai. He hasn't changed. The covenant has changed. The God covenant keeper has, hasn't changed, though. The covenant has. But notice the description of this covenant maker is he's also the judge of all. That's what it says. He's the judge of all. Who is the judge of all? Well, let me remind you what Hebrews has been telling us all along. It's on the screen here for you. Chapter 4, verse 13 of Hebrews says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. And in chapter 10, verse 30, here's what God says. God says, it is, uh, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. 
It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hmm. Be careful. You don't want to come casually to the judge of all. And so knowing these truths, yes, by all means, come before God. But as you come, you are to come in awe because He is the judge of all. But my friends, you don't come in in cowardly dread. You, You don't come dragging yourself on your belly, you know, shaking in your boots. Right? That is not how you come before the throne of God. <laughs> and, and the reason is because you have Christ, the, your great high priest, the one who has already borne your judgment for you. And so now you come to God, and, and you're, come, you're running to God because now He is your greatest delight. Under the old covenant, Mount Sinai, you're quaking in your boots. You're, you're begging Him to stop. Under the new covenant, you come because He is your greatest delight. And that's a miracle of grace. There's a fifth reality that should cause you to run to Mount Sinai, or to Mount Zion, is that you have come to the Old Testament saints. And and that's the spirits of the righteous made perfect. See, the Old Testament saints have now been made perfect. They're in heaven. They're up there with Jesus and God. And though they are in heaven, we are one with those who have actually gone before us. There's this this glorious unity with, with a Christian who's still on earth and Moses, for example. You're part of the same body. It's the same spiritual life that's coursing through us as through them. You're, you're sharing the same secrets as Abraham and Moses. Now here's the amazing thing. We, or I should say, people like Abraham and Moses had to wait a long time for that perfection that we received at the very moment that we trust Christ. Because they came, that, that, that only came with Christ's death. They had to wait for the new covenant to be instituted in Christ's blood. And so because of Christ's work, we are not inferior to the patriarchs. Because through Christ, we're all equal in righteousness. The imputed righteousness of Christ for all believers puts us all in the same standing. So that's the fifth reality. You have come to those Old Testament saints. So, so, so don't, don't, don't put Moses and Abraham up on some pedestal. They're actually on the same level as you. And then number six, the, the sixth reality that should cause you to run to Mount Zion is that you have come to Jesus. So not just God, the Old Testament saints, but to Jesus. Because verse 24 says, to Jesus. Who is he? Described, he is described here as this mediator of the new covenant. This is significant. Christ's human name is used here, by the way. Christ is used a lot in, in Hebrews, but notice it didn't say Christ. It uses his earthly human name, which was Jesus. Because we have come to this man. He is the God-man. He is one who has humbled himself, who came to earth in the form of man. He is like us and he is for us. And so Moses here, 
was the mediator under the Old Covenant. But as great as Moses was, may I remind you, the, the text says he trembled fearfully at Mount Sinai. But now through Jesus, the mediator of the New Covenant, Hebrews has told us you can draw near with confidence. How can you draw near with confidence? It's because the promises of the New Covenant are sure. And they're sure because they're in Jesus, the mediator of this New Covenant. He is the source. He is the dispenser. And He is in us, the Bible says, and we are in Him. A glorious union. And the seventh, seventh, reality that should cause you to run to Mount Zion is because of that this great God covenant maker is you now have come to forgiveness your greatest problem is solved because verse 24 says not only do you have Jesus this mediator of the new covenant but you have also come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel see Abel was slaughtered by his brother Cain. Read the book of Genesis. But Abel's blood, the Bible says, cried from the ground for vengeance and judgment. But Christ's blood doesn't do that. See, Christ's blood shouts and says, you are forgiven. You now have peace with God through that precious blood. And so God's people can shout, Hallelujah! Praise God! See, Christ's blood says, I am forgiven! So as fellow pilgrims in this great marathon, we must not go off course. Don't don't listen to Mr. Worldly Wise Man. See, he wants to send you to Mount Sinai. He wants you to go to the house of Mr. Legality. And you'll be doomed forever if you do that. But instead... Listen to Jesus. Look to Jesus. See, Jesus has met Sinai's great demands, and he did that when he died on the cross. And so these truths are the sort of things that should keep us on the right track, should keep us in the, in the new covenant here, headed toward Mount Zion. But not only do we have this, this first great motivation, that you have a covenant maker, my friends, but number two, we also see that God is judge. Number two, God is judge. And in verse 25, we, we actually have a command here. In verse 25, look what verse 25 says. It says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Who's speaking? The judge. <laughs> and what's the first thing he says? He says, don't reject God's words. Don't reject God's words. That word, that, that verb in your text, that, that verb see, is a present active imperative. A continuous thing that you must keep doing your whole life. Don't reject God's words. Now, there's a lot of things I don't understand, but one thing I have learned here is what's going on in the text is... Is it, when you come to logic, what's actually going on here is you have an a for a fortiori argument here. That just means it's an argument that's arguing from what is true in a lesser case to something that's even more true in a greater sense. So if it's true in the lesser sense, what does that mean in the greater sense? 
Well, it's still true. <laughs> That's the point the text is making. So in the lesser case here, what's, what's going on? We see God's earthly warning, which took place at Mount Sinai, sadly was rejected by Israel. And then when they finally made it to the promised land, uh, we, sadly we see that Israel disobeyed God by refusing to go into the promised land and conquer the promised land. God told them to do that. But they listened to the ten bad spies instead of the two good ones. And as a result of that, God pronounced judgment to everybody who was 20 years and older. And all of those people died in the desert. In fact, the Bible tells us, read the book of like Numbers in particular, none of them escaped God's judgment except for those two good spies who were Joshua and Caleb. So what you have is over a million corpses laying around in the desert as a result of God's judgment. Because they refused to believe, they fell to the unbelief, and as a result they rejected God, God judged them. So God says, listen to my words. Don't be like them. See that you do not refuse God, my friends. Because this is what happens. What happens? Well, number two, those who reject are going to receive judgment. It's inescapable. Because it says, for if they did not escape, when they refused Him, who warned them on earth? Now here's the greater logic much less will we escape if we reject Him who warns from heaven. So there was a warning on earth. There's also a warning in heaven. Nobody's going to escape. So my friend, considering the penalty for disobeying God's earthly message, how much greater is going to be the penalty for anybody who disobeys the heavenly message? Surely nobody's going to escape. And by the way, again, may I remind you what the Holy Spirit's been telling us over and over in Hebrews. The writer's message has been this all along, starting in chapter 2, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And then in chapter 10, the Holy Spirit reminds us, anybody who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? This is to be, to be taken seriously. See, Look at that. The message is clear, is it not? We had better obey God's Word. Why? Because the threat is serious. It is a done deal. No person's going to escape who refuses the Gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't get another chance. If you reject Jesus, you are doomed for all eternity. So there's two motivations, right? God is judge. God is the covenant maker. And here's the last one. I don't know how else to say this 
other than God is awesome. That is a motivation, that God is awesome. Now, that word is overdone, and as a result, it's been hijacked, and it gets, it kind of loses its meaning. But I didn't know how else to say this. I can't use human words to describe God, really. That's, that's basically what's going on here, okay? But the first thing we see about God in his awesomeness is this. He is a coming king. He is a coming king. He has a kingdom. And notice how is this kingdom described. Because verse 28 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. He has a kingdom. All kings have kingdoms. And He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And notice as the text is ending here, there are two appropriate responses to this King of kings. Number one, the right response to this king is gratitude. Gratitude. Okay, that's great. For what? (laughs) Gratitude for what? Well, let me explain it this way. You're to have thankfulness and gratitude for uh, for God for giving you the gospel and for and and putting you in this kingdom that cannot be shaken. Nothing can shake his kingdom. And while everything around us may look permanent for the moment, may I remind you the book of Revelation says it's not. It's all going to burn. It will pass away. But yet God's people will remain. Nothing can stop God's kingdom from triumphing over the kingdom of Satan, over the kingdom of this world. God's kingdom will prevail. It cannot be shaken. And that's why you need to be grateful. You you have something that is sure, something that you can rely upon, something that should bring you comfort in this world. And you might go to prison like some of these Hebrews did. But your kingdom is not shaken by where you sleep. Your kingdom is not shaken by your lack of food. You might only have a little bit of bread and water given to you, put under the bars of the door, like some of these people did. But your kingdom is not shaken. And that we, for that we are to be grateful. Number two, the right response to this king who has the unshakable kingdom, clearly, you're to bow down and worship. See, the Bible here, and when I say worship, there's, oh my, there's so much confusion around this. Let me be clear, my friends, this is not music. And that's why I'm very particular in my words when, when, when we talk about worship. I don't call the singing time worship. That gets confusing to people. But sometimes people think music is the only thing that's worship is music. Oh, no. Your whole life is to be worship. Okay? Yes, by all means, worship God when you're singing to Him and to one another. By all means, do that. But your whole life is worship. And so what characterizes true Christian worship? Well, notice what this text says. Reverence and awe. See, reverence means you should not just flippantly 
and haphazardly and carelessly approach this one who has an unshakable kingdom. And awe means that we worship Him with a very profound respect. We come with great humility. We come with a holy fear, the fear of the Lord. We don't come with arrogance. We don't come with carelessness because He's an awesome God. We worship Him knowing what we actually deserve. Do you know what you deserve? you, You deserve destruction. You deserve condemnation. You deserve to go to hell. I deserve that too, by the way. I'm not just speaking about you. But that's what I deserve. Well, how come I'm not getting that? Because of a merciful and gracious God who is awesome. And so, I worship this one knowing what I deserve. And I can come before God because it is the throne of grace. And I have confidence in this one who is awesome. But not only is he the coming king, verse 29 reminds us, hmm, the fear of the Lord. He is a consuming fire. God is a consuming fire. <sighs> Too many people think of their salvation as just merely fire insurance. Yes, it does save you from fire. <laughs> Clearly it does. But the gospel is far more than that. It's not just merely fire insurance. See, the gospel of Christ is Christ's mercy saving us from God Himself. He is a consuming fire. We are saved from His holy wrath, which we rightfully deserve. And so while the gospel gives us a better revelation than, than what was received by Israel at Mount Sinai, It's not a different God. He is not a different God. He hasn't changed. He can't change. God is unchanging. He is now as He always has been, and He's going to stay that for all eternity. And so that means He is still holy. He is still exalted. He is awesome in His majesty and glory. He is still this consuming fire. See, the human author of Hebrews has the same problem I do. How do, you, how do you describe the awesomeness of God? You can't. So, what's one of the most powerful things that people knew at that time? Fire. Okay, we'll use that to describe God. How else do you describe Him? He's a consuming fire. And I, I really like C.S. Lewis. You've probably picked up on this. He's one of my favorite authors, along with John Bunyan, but C.S. Lewis famously depicted this concept of God being a consuming fire in his series called The Chronicles of Narnia. And I remember being a little boy reading these, and it really started me on a glorious journey of reading books. But C.S. Lewis uses the figure of Aslan, who is this giant and majestic lion, to depict the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Bible, what is, how does it describe Jesus Christ? He is the Lion of Judah. So that's why he does that. But at one point in that series, one of the heroines, who is a very adventurous girl named Jill, 
Jill comes upon a stream of water. And she's been lost and, and is uh, almost dying of thirst at this point. And as she comes forward, she sees this great lion who is sitting calmly by the water that she so desperately needs. Terrified, she stops in her tracks. And the lion, represented, who is representing Jesus here, remember, actually invites her over and says, If you are thirsty, come and drink. Hmm. That sounds like a passage from the Bible. Yeah, that's what Jesus said. Come and drink, right? And so, dying of thirst, and she's drawn by this rippling, gurgling, glorious water. The girl steps forward a bit. And she says to the lion, Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come to the water? The lion says, I make no promise. And drawn closer by these refreshing sounds of water, she wonders aloud, Do you eat little girls? The lion says, I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and entire realms. Jill recoils at this, concluding, I dare not come and drink. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, cries Jill, drawn yet a step closer by her need for refreshment. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then, she says. But the lion responds, there is no other stream. I love these stories. And here's the point, my friends. If you're going to have a thirst in your soul, which we all do, and if you're going to have that thirst in your soul filled and satisfied, you have to go to the right place. You must come to the waters of eternal life. Jesus said it's Him. You have to come to Him if you're going to have have your life satisfied. And my friends, if you are going to have the thirst of your soul filled by the waters of eternal life, then you're going to have to deal with this kind of a God who is a consuming fire. You're going to have to deal with Him. See, this kind of God is like Aslan. He's not going to move out of your way just to make life comfortable for you. He's not going to become more palatable for you. He is never safe. But He is the Savior. He's a God of majesty and grace. He is the God who shakes the heavens and the earth as this text has shown us. But He also gives us a kingdom that cannot be shaken. He gives us Himself who cannot be shaken. And so for every person, the choice is the same. And it doesn't matter if you're a Hebrew or you're a Gentile. The choice is the same. If you try to approach God through your works, you're going to go to Mount Sinai. You're going to end up at the house of Mr. Legality and you're going to be crushed. It's not a safe place. You'll discover that your works actually fall short of the glory of God. So whether we are a Jew or a Gentile, to trust in the atoning blood of Jesus Christ 
is not going to Mount Sinai, you come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. And that actually brings you to your great high priest. It brings you to the throne of God. And so if you have truly come to the heavenly Jerusalem, to Mount Sinai, or to Mount Zion, sorry, and you've received all of those blessings, the seven realities that we've seen here, it's something that's actually inconceivable. You're never really going to fully understand it. But I hope that you'll hold on to it nevertheless. Don't be tempted to be distracted, to, to go off the path. You have to endure. You have to persevere. Yes, life is difficult. But we must not quit. As this, <laughs> I found this funny sign that says, Don't quit. Cross out those words. Because you must endure. You must persevere. Because that's what Christians do. Well, how are you going to do that? Well, you have to be motivated to endure because life is not easy for a Christian. But nevertheless, God has given us these glorious motivations of who He is that will enable you to persevere and endure. Hold on to Him. Keep looking to Jesus as you run this race. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for revealing Yourself and and these glorious truths here. Thank you for giving us some wonderful motivation to to keep going and not quit, to to do what we need to do. But as we do this, may we look in the right places. Uh, May we not uh, look uh, aside from Jesus and other things that, that might cause us to stumble and trip up and quit and grow weary. May we keep our eyes in the right places, thinking the right thoughts, meditating on the right truths so we would not fall prey to unbelief. We're thankful you love us so much. You've given us some glorious motivation. So may we believe these things and act upon them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.